This is the Soil Sense podcast where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. It's a journey that requires collaboration, curiosity, and communication among farmers, researchers, agronomists, consultants, and extension. You're going to hear their stories and discover how and why they're working together to make sense out of what's happening in the soil. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of Soil Sense. I'm your host, Tim Hamridge. Today's episode is a great follow-up from last week when Dr. Abby Wick talked about the Trusted Advisor Partnership. If you haven't already listened to that one, I highly recommend it because it provides a lot of great context that could be helpful for today's episode as well. Today, Abby and I sit down with Dr. Steve Rosenzweig. Steve is a soil scientist and the agriculture science lead at General Mills. As I'm sure most of you already know, General Mills is a leading American producer of consumer foods, especially flour, breakfast cereals, snacks, prepared mixes, and other similar products. This is really an interesting conversation today about how General Mills is looking at soil health and regenerative agriculture, how they view their role in agricultural sustainability overall, and what insights they've learned from being involved in soil health initiatives for several years. Steve joined the company in 2017, right after earning his PhD in soil science at Colorado State University. He says his role is to help find scientifically driven ways to increase adoption of soil health principles in areas where General Mills sources their key ingredients for their products. He also works on the science side to see how to measure things like soil health, biodiversity, water, and farm economics at a large scale. Before you hear from Steve here, just a couple of helpful tidbits, we'll say. Uh, This is one of a handful of interviews that you're going to hear this season that took place at Agronomy on Ice in Devil's Lake, North Dakota in February of 2023. Uh, We were in the very popular Anheuser-Busch Ice House, so there will likely be a little bit of background noise from time to time on these episodes. It's not bad at all, but uh, just something to be aware of in case you think you hear something funky in the background. Uh, And outside of the Ice House, they were playing a game called Hammerschlagen, which is just a game where players take turns trying to hammer nails into a large piece of wood. And I only mention that because it comes up in this conversation. Steve uses it as sort of an analogy. So I thought you'd uh, like to know what he's referring to there. So with that, I'll drop you into this conversation between myself, Dr. Abby Wick, and Dr. Steve Rosenzweig of General Mills. We had been involved in the early on kind of national soil health initiatives. So setting up things like the Soil Health Institute and the Soil Health Partnership, they had been kind of really investing in that space and, and really saw you know, General Mills as being a key you know, enabler of that broader soil health movement. And they wanted someone to really help figure out you know, how do we keep advancing in this space? How does General Mills continue to be kind of at the forefront, a leader in, in this soil health movement in the country. And so they had a role for a soil scientist to really come in and help figure out how do we measure improvements in soil health as we make investments you know, in farmers and in partnerships on the ground? And how do we fit as a food company in this whole movement? So that's kind of what I, what I came in to help figure out. <laughs> Well, those are big questions. How, how do you go about starting, uh, you know, fresh out of your PhD, huge questions, big company, you know, where, where do you start? I was based not at the headquarters building, but actually at a USDA ARS facility in Brookings, South Dakota for a whole year. You know, we had some farmers that we knew we sourced from and had good relationships with. And I was actually just started by soil sampling their fields and and starting to do some on-farm research. So I think that's kind of where we started was just, you know, how do we get plugged into the research community and 
and really start to advance this kind of systems level on-farm research to complement a lot of you know what's happening at universities and you know USDA research sites that are more kind of replicated, controlled experiments. We wanted to also be out there helping to figure out how do we conduct on-farm research with farmers to, to really understand what they're learning and what they're seeing on their farm. So that's kind of where we started was really on that research side. And then it's really also just been about forming partnerships with folks that that are you know in the communities that we are sourcing these ingredients from and really understand that local context. And so it's just been a lot of uh, networking and building relationships with with people that actually kind of know what needs to happen because you know we're kind of a couple steps removed from the farmer as a food company you know we we don't buy grain or or anything really directly from farmers we we buy it through a supplier an aggregator and so you know we're a couple steps removed so we we really are forming community level kind of partnerships with local folks that really understand the context and really just helping enable them and so that's that's kind of been the journey over the last couple of years. And with you all being a couple steps removed, you know, if somebody's a farmer and wants to know, like, well, why does General Mills care about how I run my business? You know, how I handle my soil. You know, what what do you tell somebody like that? Well, if you think about the business model of any food company, you know, we take the outputs of Mother Nature and farming, you know, farming communities, farmers, and you know, turn those ingredients into food products and market those to consumers. So our entire business is resting on the resilience and ability of farmers to keep farming essentially so you know increasingly our leadership investors they really want to make sure that we are investing to make sure that general mills is going to be around for another 150 years we're a 150 year old company and so you know what are the things that we need to do to stick around for another 150 years and really forming these kinds of partnerships and and really helping to support farmers and increase their viability longevity and, and resilience is kind of we've realized it's a business imperative. So their business is our business, essentially. Yeah. And I think part of what's happening right now in this environment is there's a push for companies to talk about being sustainable without really like being sustainable. And I'm sure that's something that was going through your head when you're considering taking the job. So how did you sort of assess like, okay, is General Mills really serious about this? Or is this just something we could put on a cereal box to say we're sustainable? Well, yeah. I mean, I think it first started with just the people, you know, getting to know the people that were working there and understanding like them as humans and kind of what drove them. And it really was people that were passionate about agriculture, had been involved for a long time or, you know, very passionate about sustainability and, and doing it for the right reason. So I could kind of pick up on that, you know, just in in sort of meeting the folks that I was going to be working with. But then, you know, on the other side too, I've, I've heard a lot, you know, because so General Mills has a regenerative agriculture commitment to advance regenerative ag on a million acres by 2030. And, you know, I, I've often heard folks say like, well, is that just a marketing ploy? And the reality is not many people, not many consumers understand what that is. Um, so, you know, if it was a marketing ploy, this may be not the most effective or way into that. You know, I think it really is about supporting agriculture as a whole and improving these range of outcomes from soils to water to farmer economic resilience. And that's kind of what it's always been as the main objective. And, you know, helping consumers understand what this is all about is also a part of it and and figuring out how do we bring them along on this journey so that we can help to bridge what's happening on the farm with what, you know, people are thinking about when they're when they're eating food. But I think that's just a longer journey that we're on. There's no one type of consumer either. You know, General Mills has a whole bunch of different brands with lots of different people at the, you know, leading edge of of consumers that are want to know everything about where their food is coming from all the way to, you know, a mainstream kind of 
person who's mostly thinking about things like taste and price and convenience and and sustainability and how things are grown isn't really the first thing that's on their mind when they're in the grocery store. So, you know, we've got to serve all of these different types of people. And and for that commitment, how are you all defining kind of that threshold of of when something is regenerative? Yeah, so we don't have it's we're not creating a binary, you know, this is regenerative, this is not regenerative. Um, So our definition is that regenerative ag is a holistic principles-based approach to farming and ranching that seeks to strengthen communities and and ecosystem resilience. So basically what that means is it's it's really about the approach and it's about a journey. It's not really about a destination. I mean, you could talk to farmers who have been doing this for a long time and they say, I'm still not done. I'm still learning. I'm still evolving. I'm still, you know, regenerating my ecosystem and regenerating my mindset and how I approach this system, still learning. So you're never kind of done. And um, I think we've tried to reflect that in how we approach things. So really, we've taken more of an outcome based approach where we're trying to measure soils and biodiversity and water and economics and really just understand how can farmers help improve these outcomes over time. And so, we're really not trying to create that binary distinction and say, this is regenerative, this is not. It's really more about the journey. We were just talking about how a Hammerschlagen is. Yeah. <laughs> Someone was like, what happens at the end of Hammerschlagen? It's like, well, the nail is in the stump. And they're like, I don't get it. It's like, well, it's more about the journey, not the destination. And I think, uh, I think we're in a similar spot with regenerative ag. <laughs> I love that analogy. <laughs> that is great. So, you know, you have the, the difficult task of like, taking these ambitions for where the company wants to go in their supply chain and actually putting the data to it of like like how you're doing and what's possible so if if your superiors call you into their office and they say okay you know we've got these big ambitions of regenerative acres and lowering our carbon footprint by 2030 how are we doing you know how, how do you approach that conversation i mean i think one thing that's important to understand is that these are really like societal goals it's not something that any one company can control And so, you know, one of the things I try to say a lot is, you know, we won't be successful in hitting our goals unless everybody hits their goals. We're in this together, you know, greenhouse gas reduction. It doesn't really make sense even to think about, you know, climate reduction goal for each individual company because the climate is, it's a planetary goal that we ultimately have to keep warming below 1.5 degrees C. So, even if General Mills and all the other companies that have voluntary commitments met their goal, we still wouldn't hit that planetary goal. And so we have to kind of first focus on what is the real goal at that community level, at the planetary scale, and make sure like that's the goal that we're really acting towards. And that requires partnership and collaboration and you know working with others to try and influence things that are outside of our control. Because the reality is our greenhouse gas reduction goal is what's called a scope three greenhouse gas goal. So there's three different scopes of greenhouse gas emissions. Scope one is the emissions that you directly create through your factories or your company cars or you know your direct emissions. Scope two emissions are all of the emissions from the energy that you use to run a company. And then scope three is everything else. So it's the energy it uses to produce the fertilizer that goes onto the farm that's used to grow the ingredients. And then it's all the shipping, it's all the packaging, it's all the when the consumer's at home baking a Pillsbury Crescent roll in their oven, it's that energy that's used for that oven. It's the emissions from the landfill. It's, it's everything you can imagine. And we don't control all of that. So this greenhouse gas reduction goal is kind of more about sort of looking outside of our four walls and trying to get involved and be collaborative and being helpful in moving sort of these, these bigger systems forward. So yeah, it's a tough thing to, to have a goal like that where you 
don't directly control your fate really, but you know, we have to do our fair share and do our part to help make society as a whole better. So that's kind of what this is all about. So scope three seems like impossible to measure. How good are we at measuring scope three emissions for a massive company like General Mills? Yeah. And it's new space for, you know, everybody, you know, it really hasn't been around that long that we've been trying to figure out how do we actually measure scope three. You know, I was just thinking back to like, I heard a liquor company once say that part of their scope three emissions is the ice that is used when people drink their whiskey or whatever. And so they had to figure out how much ice are people using when they drink our drink. So it's, it's just like, you have to really kind of wrap your head around all of these different assumptions that go into your scope three footprint. That's what makes it so complex. But I think we've got a lot of cool solutions in the agricultural space. And so one of the things that we're really doing is using tools like satellite imagery that can really monitor, you know, what's happening in agriculture at this landscape scale and, you know, look at things like cover crops or, or tillage practices or even kind of biomass growth and, and understand how that impacts the carbon cycle and, and then plug all that information into models to just get a better sense of what are the emissions from agriculture even in this place, you know, and really just looking at, you know, our supply sheds that we call them, these, these regions that we source our ingredients from, they're about 200 million acres in size. So that's kind of the scale at which we need to understand what practices are happening on the farm and you know, what the emissions are. And so satellite imagery and modeling, these kinds of new tools are really a great way to at least get a little bit closer to those estimates that we, that we feel comfortable about, you know, reporting what our scope three emissions even are. Wow. And I'm sure there's a lot of, of groups that would love to partner with General Mills. I know you're a small team and you're covering, as you just said, a lot of ground, literally. How do you decide what types of partnerships to pursue? And then maybe you could, that could lead into you talking about this trusted advisor partnership as well. You know, to me, I, I think about who has trusted relationships with farmers in the place, who has kind of a similar, I guess, philosophy about, you know, agriculture and you know, these soil health systems that can really move things forward. You know, I think we're trying to partner with kind of these leading organizations that really see things in a similar way and working towards common goals, but then also just those that really kind of understand the local challenges and opportunities. That's kind of really what we're looking for is folks that are making changes on the ground, having an impact, working to really, yeah, make things better in that local, you know, system. So that's really what we're looking for. And so that's, Really why we're excited to be a part of TAP because, you know, Abby and this North Dakota state program, along with Sustainable Food Lab and all the other companies that have been brought together. I mean, I think we all have a common goal in this system. And, and this is just a really cool project, I think, to improve, you know, educational systems for agronomists that are out there that are interested in learning about soil health. You know, just giving them an opportunity to learn about, you know, how do I have these kinds of conversations with my farmer? So it's just a great opportunity for us to support you know, a, a really cool educational program along with all the others who kind of are leading in the space. So. Okay. That turns it over to me. Tim and I are trying this where I get to ask questions too. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, so, you know, you guys have had a lot of different approaches over the years and I know you've, you've focused on farmers and the technical aspects, but then also probably some cost share things. And, and when you look at all of those approaches, do you feel like there's one that sticks out or are they used in combination as maybe the best approach? Yeah. So we've been piloting different approaches, trying to figure out what sorts of resources are useful and you know meaningful to a farmer who's trying to make changes on their farm. And so we've tried you know uh, investing in things like one-on-one -on -one coaching with a, an agronomist 
we've worked on helping set up supportive social networks and peer-to-peer learning groups with farmers and having lots of field days and discussion groups and those sorts of things. And also on the on the financial incentive side, there's a lot there, lots of different approaches, lots of different needs, uh, especially for farmers at different kind of points in their journey, you know, starting off not having really tried much before, you have a very different kind of financial risk and need than if you've been in this for three to five to 10 years. So we've just been kind of piloting and you know, trying out these different approaches. And I think really what we found is you kind of need a little bit of everything. You need a supportive social environment around you of, of other farmers who can, you know, help keep your confidence up when things don't go well. And, you know, you can keep learning with each other and from each other so that you're really accelerating, you know, your trial and error period by having a network of other people who are trying lots of different things. So you need that network. You know, you kind of need a good agronomist, good advice, you know, about things to try or things to watch out for. And then also, you know, some farmers have have definitely made some big changes and been very successful without much financial support. But I think there's also an opportunity to really help ease that transition and de-risk a lot of these new practices that that farmers are trying. So, so the economic and financial piece of it is also an important leg of the stool. So there's kind of those those three legs, I suppose, that are kind of important to have. I think a lot of uh, farmers would be surprised to hear how you and, and other people working in this space are really connected to farmers. And you visited a lot of farms and you've taken people out there and you've learned things from farmers and from trusted advisors. And so what is one of your favorite kind of experiences or stories from that? Yeah. I mean, one of the coolest things that I think you know I've seen is just you know, especially when there's real challenges and weather's, you know, it's maybe it's extremely dry that year and just nothing seems to have worked out. You know, some of the farmers that have been kind of connected to our programs and are really plugged into, you know, this kind of new space and have this supportive network, it's just sort of the difference between their mindset and their outlook and their optimism versus kind of how how those situations affect their neighbors. And, you know, there's some farmers that were feeling really down in, in this farmer's neighborhood, but he's just like, I'm excited to keep learning and keep seeing what comes next because we learned a ton this year. And it's really about them getting excited about that learning process and staying optimistic about what's coming next. They don't get down when things aren't working out well because they just know that they're on this path to improvement and that there's real opportunity. So I get excited about that kind of optimism. Yeah, I feel like that's a good model for all of us because when you're trying to reach, was it 200 million acres? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can get feel pretty down, I'm sure, at times about how things are going or yeah, that optimism is key. And what is it, you know, in working with all these other food and beverage companies on tap, um, what is that like for you in this model versus prior areas maybe or even advancing these practices? Yeah, I mean, it's really cool to be in collaboration with others. I mean, like I said before, it's not you know, none of this stuff is something that any one organization can do on their own. And so, you know, we've started programs in other places where it's just been kind of a General Mills thing. Um, you know, we've had our General Mills regenerative ag pilots that we've had 45 farmers up in Canada and 24 farmers in Kansas that have been part of these programs. But, you know, we realized we can't really scale if it's just going to be a General Mills thing. And I think this is true for everybody. We kind of have to release control over these kind of programs and our supply chains and just getting focused on like the things that we care about that are connected to our business. I think once we start looking more at these landscapes and these states and these communities at that level, and we sort of release the control over these programs and make them more locally led, locally owned, and and it's just something that we're helping to enable and accelerate. I think that's the only way that we can get to scale. Because if we're going to have a General Mills program and a Pepsi program, and a, you know, it's like we all have our own little thing. 
we're all going to be kind of bumping into each other and competing. So I, I'm really excited about this as just a great example of how we can kind of come together and support something that that is more locally owned and led and where we're just collaborating to, to support a good thing. So I'd say uh, that has been a key learning for us coming out of our pilots is just that, you know, having that one-on-one -on -one support from a knowledgeable advisor is really an important role. And I talked about financial incentives before, but Really, in a lot of ways, I, I see the benefit of a financial incentive as it helps get a foot in the door for maybe a, an, an advisor that that hasn't you know been able to kind of break through with a farmer yet to really help evolve that mindset and really get them on the path you know this journey that that we were talking about. So it's really that kind of evolution in the mindset and how you kind of see your operation, how you see yourself in the operation, starting to think more long term, starting to see the opportunities and kickstart that optimism and curiosity and learning mindset. That's, I think, one of the, the really powerful things about a knowledgeable, trusted advisor. It's just someone that can help get you on that journey. And that's really what's needed to create long term change. So, you know, I think financial incentives are great, but unless you kind of engage that intrinsic motivation and that understanding and that mindset, it's going to be easier to go back to what you were doing before once that financial incentive goes away. And so I think pairing these things together and having that advisor is kind of the core foundation of any you know relationship and program. I, I think that's, that's really an important piece. I think there's a lot of money in this space that folks want to give to farmers and, and incentivize and, and for good reasons. But I think we can't lose sight of how important that trusted advisor is at really enabling that long-term success and and mindset shift because that's that's what's going to make the money actually impactful uh, in the long run. So another question, just as like a brief overview of there are other groups and organizations in the space, Nature Conservancy, people like the Sustainable Food Lab. What are some of those top groups that are involved, and what do you know about them, or, or why farmers should trust those groups that are that are engaging? Yeah, so I, I think about, you know, we have a partnership with the Nature Conservancy, you know, out in Minnesota and, and they're, you know, doing a lot of things that otherwise there really isn't a role for. And it's a lot of things that are like coordination at a state level or coordination of, you know, different groups that are working on projects at a local level. And so, you know, so the Nature Conservancy, for example, is helping to coordinate a bunch of conservation districts in a region in Minnesota to implement a program out there. And so, you know, there's lots of different roles and a group like the Nature Conservancy, they're a huge global organization that does lots of things. But, you know, that's that's one of the ways that we work with them is is really in that kind of program implementation at a, um, you know, at a regional level because they can help to coordinate all these local actors and just kind of make folks, uh, you know, work more effectively together. But they've also got great science team. They're helping to understand key concepts like soil health and, you know, soil carbon sequestration and some of these really complex scientific topics. So yeah, and and policy, you know, they're working on figuring out how do we help support, you know, soil health policy and and make things easier for farmers, you know, from that angle too. So yeah, there's there's groups kind of working on this from all sorts of different angles. And so it's kind of cool to have this group of partners that really has a different strength and and uh kind of sees it in a different way. And have you been a part of, or has General Mills been a part of an initiative before that specifically focuses on the trusted advisor, or is this kind of the first deliberate trusted advisor program that you've worked with? Um, yeah, we've we've worked with kind of that, you know, thinking about them as a trusted advisor, I guess, in different capacities in the past. So we work with Understanding Ag, who has a network of consultants. You know, a lot of times they're a farmer or rancher themselves that has a lot of experience in you know in this space. And so we've we've worked with them to help provide you know that agronomic support to farmers, and that was kind of the core of our regenerative ag pilots early on. That's that's really how we kind of learned that, wow, this is a really impactful 
thing when, when a farmer who really hasn't had that much support before, you know, there really wasn't that knowledgeable advisor for them to go to, you know, but they've been trying this stuff in the past. Like when you actually connect them with, with that person and then have this network of other farmers form around that, it just accelerates the pace of change. You know, I've had farmers say like, it would have taken me 10 years to get to where I'm at now. You know, what I, what I was able to kind of achieve in two to three years. So it just really helps accelerate that learning process. And that, that was some of the key learnings that, that we've had in, in our early pilots. Cool. Well, who's been in that role for you? I mean, who, who has either mentored you or opened your eyes to how important this work is? Well, you know, coming from grad school into the corporate world, it is kind of a big shift, but I've got my colleague Jay Watson here at General Mills who's, you know, he had been a corn buyer. He's, you know, been in a lot of different roles in the industry and the food system and so he's he's really helped me navigate kind of the corporate world and understanding how to be effective within General Mills and and really how to have an impact, you know, in this kind of different space. So I see Jay as a, a mentor of mine and then, you know, my advisor from grad school, Megan Chapansky, she's really encouraged me to do a lot of this kind of on-farm work and really get out there and engage with farmers. You know, it, it probably could have been easy for me just to design a little experiment and learn a lot, but I decided for my PhD to do all on-farm research and just drove all across Colorado and Kansas and Nebraska finding who are the farmers that had been doing this stuff for a while? Who are the farmers that were maybe their neighbors that hadn't been doing this stuff for a while? Collect soil samples and understand the economics of all these different systems out there. Take some risks and do some social science, you know, something that I hadn't done a lot before, but sit down with farmers at their kitchen table and do interviews. So I did dozens of interviews at the kitchen table with farmers. And I learned probably more just sitting down with farmers than I did in any of my classes, really. So, so just having that encouragement for Megan was really, really important. Well, what, what's next? What's uh, what's next on your mind as far as priorities for General Mills, and, you know, to reach some of these ambitious goals you have? I think it is really starting to try and do more coalition building of you know the like-minded and the willing to figure out how do we have less competition in this space and how do we have more collaboration. I think it is just rallying people around places. Like I, I think it's really easy to kind of get people in a room and say, yeah, we all agree in principle on some certain things, but once we actually look at a map see where do we actually have overlapping sourcing regions and start to connect the dots on who our different partners are and what's our theory of change in that place and and what do we think we can do to be most helpful and impactful together in a place like that's really where i think the rubber is going to meet the road and that's kind of what we're going to be doing a lot over the next year or so is just getting together with like-minded folks who who maybe care about the same regions as us and trying to be more collaborative instead of competitive so that we can have a bigger impact together with the programs you're involved in it sounds like the goal is not to sell the carbon necessarily, but that might be a byproduct. Is that right? I mean, is, is sort of your approach from General Mills, you know, where you're uh, pursuing the same principles, but the end result you hope is more resilience on the farm instead of carbon credits, or maybe talk about how you look at that. Yeah, I'd say our first priority is to just make sure that we're investing in the right things, having an impact, doing the things that are meaningful. But we also have this greenhouse gas reduction goal that requires us to demonstrate progress on our emissions. We have to reduce our emissions by 30% by 2030. And that's our scope three reduction goal. So that's a a target that's registered with the Science-Based Targets Initiative. And ecosystem service markets are one way that we can show verified progress towards those commitments. And so I think that's actually what's driving a lot of companies in this space to want to pay farmers for you know greenhouse gas reduction, carbon sequestration in soil is because we have these scope three commitments. And 
these markets are kind of some of the only ways that, you know, because the scientific protocols are there to measure the thing, we've got the third party, you know, verifiers that kind of put their stamp of approval on it. So that when we say in 2030, yes, we've met our goal, we've reduced our footprint by 30% by 2030, having that market and having that kind of system in place gives people confidence that we actually did what we said we did. So that's kind of what's driving a lot of this interest in the ecosystem service market space. But I know it's early. There's a lot of different choices out there. There's some programs that are more offset programs. So companies not in the food and agricultural space that are buying the carbon, kind of plucking it out of the agricultural system. So it gets kind of confusing. And um, I think rightly so, some farmers and implementation partners are kind of overwhelmed with the number of choices and and the complexity of this space. So, you know, we're kind of dipping our toe in there. Well, I don't want to like open up a can of worms at the end here, but how do you keep that from being double counted? So let's say by 2030, you do reduce your greenhouse gas emissions by 30%. And it's with a bunch of farmers who are then selling those as carbon credits for offsets. Does that really get us anywhere if if like, hey, you're saying, look, our farmers have reduced and the company that bought the offset is saying like, look, we've reduced. How do you keep it from being double counted? Or is that one yeah. of the things that just needs to get figured out over time? Yeah, that's definitely an important thing. We got to make sure we're not double counting the impact that only happened once. And so I think it's just part of the contract of how many of these programs are set up that you can't be part of two programs in that same field at the same time. You know, you can really only be selling into one one of these markets. But it's still a challenge. And, and even among different markets, we kind of have to make sure that we have some sort of system to track all of that. So that especially when we do something like satellite imagery, and we're kind of picking up the changes that are happening on the landscape, well, some of those changes, you know, somebody might be claiming through one of those markets. And so we have to kind of create these systems that can help us track who is in what program and make sure that the, you know, the benefits are only getting counted once. That's a lot of the solution building we have to do as we set these markets up. I will just give a plug. So for the Ecosystem Services Market Consortium, it's the only nonprofit ecosystem service market in the space that's focused on more than just carbon. It's also about water. We're developing a biodiversity credit. It's just for companies that have these scope three greenhouse gas reduction goals, you know, really investing in that agricultural food value chain to help farmers reduce emissions that stay within the food sector instead of kind of being sold off as offsets to another sector. It's really about kind of keeping it within the industry and and just making sure that we're rewarding farmers within our value chains for reducing emissions because that really reduces the emissions of the whole value chain. So our supplier, us, our you know, retailer, customer, the consumer, it helps reduce emissions for that that whole value chain. So that's kind of what what ESMC is all about. Question a farmer had for me was um why would I sell carbon credits if I might need them later for themselves? And I don't know if that's on your radar. I'm sure it is. But how would you discuss that with a farmer? Or <laughs> Yeah. I don't know that I've heard anything related to like regulation that would create kind of like the need for a farmer to, to verify their own reduction. I think it really is. I mean, everything that's happening right now is in the voluntary space. Some farmers are sitting on their impact in order to see how much money they can get for it and try to get the, the biggest value. But you know, one of the things that's important to realize is kind of in these markets, we have requirements for additionality, it's called. So we, we really can only pay for things that are proven to have been caused from our investment. So like this emissions reduction would not have happened had we not invested in it. That's kind of the, the principle that we have to sort of prove. And so if a farmer's already done lots of great stuff and they've already stored all this carbon, we can't really pay for stuff that's already happened through these markets. 
you know, I think we have to find other ways of rewarding early adopters, but I can't think of a reason that they would need to kind of sit on their carbon or, you know, wait to make a change. I would say first and foremost to a farmer, do the thing that is right for your farm and your business. And especially don't wait to make a change that you want to make just to kind of make an extra buck from these carbon markets, because it's really not going to be that large in comparison to the benefit that you're going to realize for your farm for making a change that's important to you. So don't try to play the game too much, I guess, and just kind of stick with what's right for you. But you know, these, these programs can be an important incentive or a, a nice reward for doing kind of the right thing. Well, big thank you to Steve Rosenzweig for sitting down with Abby and I for this podcast interview. I hope that provided a little bit of insight into how General Mills is approaching soil health. I personally walked away encouraged that companies like General Mills are hiring smart and grounded people like Steve for these types of roles in soil health. Almost as cool as being a soil scientist is the fact that Steve also plays guitar in a band called Manifest Content. So if you're ever in the Twin Cities, you may be able to see them perform. And I hear they're working on getting some music up on Spotify as well. But uh, maybe we can convince them to make us some Soil Sense podcast music in the future. Thanks so much to Steve and to Abby for co-hosting, and thanks to our sponsors for this season of Soil Sense, the North Central Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program, the North Dakota Corn Council, the North Dakota Wheat Commission, the North Dakota Soybean Council, the North Harvest Dry Bean Association, the North Dakota Barley Council, and Anheuser-Busch. If you're listening and getting value from this podcast, we'd sure love it if you could leave us a rating and review on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts or on both, and share your favorite episodes on Twitter using the hashtag soil sense we'll be back with another episode of soil sense next week Mm -hmm.